0: now, coming to you live from Regal Cinemas in beautiful downtown New York City, as part of the Tribeca Film Festival, it's Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Thank yeah, you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think we should show him a movie, don't you, Gil?
1: Yes, Todd. Boy, this place is packed. <laughs> Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Padre, and our guest today has accomplished so much over his career, we don't know where to begin the introducing. <laughs> but here goes. He's a writer, producer, occasional actor, and one of the most Prolific and celebrated film directors of the last five decades. He co-wrote the screenplay for the courtroom drama Justice for All and collaborated with Mel Brooks on the screenplays for both Silent Movie and High Anxiety. As a producer, he's helped bring to the screen feature films such as Donnie Brasco, The Perfect Storm, and analyze that, as well as the landmark television shows like Oz and Homicide Life on the Street. His impressive body of work as a director includes some of the most popular and prestigious movies of the last 35 years, including Diner, Good Morning Vietnam, Tin Man, sleepers bugsy wag the dog and rain man for which he was awarded the oscar for best director his newest film starring robert de niro and michelle pfeiffer is called the wizard of lies we're very grateful to have him here on the podcast although he did take time out to make us fill out a football quiz Before he agreed to do it, please welcome to the show Baltimore's favorite son, the multi talented Barry Levinson.
0: Thanks, Barry.
2: Like you, did, you did it like sort of uh, like an announcer at some uh, stadium or something. Oh yeah, and the thing about it's very big.
1: Now wasn't wasn't John Forsythe an announcer at at the ballpark? John Forsythe, John Forsythe, yeah, John Forsythe, was he from Bachelor Father?
2: Really, and he was in uh, Injustice for All. Yes, he I was. wrote.
1: Yes, and but he was
2: an announcer.
1: And he was originally supposed to be Charlie, and Charlie's oh well, he was. He, he was. was, strong. The was one who was originally was Gig Young. Oh, it was? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, Okay, now. You know these things. <laughs> yeah, I know stuff that people really don't want to know. Now, now, first of all, I, I have to say, fuck you, you ruined my career. <laughs> because out of all the movies you've done, they've all been major hits. And and you hire me for some piece of shit pilot you're working on.
2: <laughs> that could have been a terrific show. Yes. Tell could us have been. Tell us about that Could pilot. have been. Uh, what was it called? Toast of Manhattan, right? Yes. Which was, it was sort of like, uh, it would have been like the Ed Sullivan show, except it begins with, uh, um, good night, everybody. Right. It would would have been like a good night, everybody. And so the show, we see the making of the show through the course of the week and it ends when it begins. And in it, we had all these sketches and we had all of this kind of backstage stuff that was going on. And you did a bunch of things for the show. Yeah. It was a good cast.
1: In a way, it was. Yeah. Paul Reiser was on it.
0: Yeah, Carol Ephraim was on it. Yep. Yeah.
1: And and. It was kind of like a live-action Muppets in that way, yeah. like the butt goes on backstage. Uh, and and I even had that song stuck in my head <laughs> that was the song of Toast of Manhattan was supposed to be like an Ed Sullivan-ish yeah. show. And I remember the song. It was... It's the Toast of Manhattan, the Toast of Manhattan, <laughs> so this must be Sunday. The Toast of Manhattan, the Toast of Manhattan, and here's our own Fred A. Every Sunday... Every Sunday, <laughs> with lots and lots of variety, it's the <laughs> of
0: This was a failed pilot. Yeah. In the 70s. Uh, yes. And yes. you remember the theme Yes, stage.
1: Yeah. And it's He's
0: impressive. the
2: only one. It's yeah. impressive. <laughs> only one could ever remember. I don't even know that.
1: And-, and I remember I did a character on this show, and I was th- in my late 20s at the time we were doing this, and... Uh, they said to me, "Oh, well, what? How would you describe the character?" And so I said, "Middle aged." And somehow through the makeup department and producers, they made they did like this ten hour makeup job on me, like <laughs> that
2: that Boris Karloff sits. <laughs> they called him. in Jack Pierce to yeah. make to do yeah. it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you were middle aged for the show.
1: Yes, yeah, it was. It well, it middle aged became like. Uh, Dorian Gray after he staffed the painting. (laughs) (laughs) And so everyone else said call time would be 9 o'clock. Mine would be 3 in the morning.
2: (laughs) All that for a show that didn't go anywhere.
1: And you had on, also on this show, two people who not only worked with later, uh, but who you... were in a comedy team with years ago.
0: Craig Nelson? Yeah, yeah. Craig T. Craig Craig T. Nelson. Nelson. How many people know Barry and Craig T. Nelson were part of a comedy team?
2: Yeah. Nobody would know that.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> no one. And, and the writer Rudy, and Rudy DeLuca. DeLuca. Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Craig and I used to play, because uh, we were in acting school together, and then trying to make money, we started to put together some material, and we played clubs in L.A., and we would we did this act. You'd do like three shows a night, you know. And uh, neither one of us wanted to do that, but we were able to at least get some money. And you know, Craig wanted to act, and I I just didn't want to do that. I didn't know what to do yet, but I didn't want to do that idea of getting up in front of an audience, and and performing. But it it wasn't bad, you know. It wasn't bad to do, you know. But uh, we quickly got out of that.
0: When well, we were talking about on the runway, I was telling you how hard it is to find any traces of that act. You would, yeah. There, there was a GE College Bowl. There's
2: a reason for it. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a, there was a GE College Bowl skit. G. E. College Bowl. There was a drill, a, a, a marching, a marching uh, the, band.
2: There were three of us. We yeah. would do a, mar- a precision marching band. Right. three people. It, and, and it actually worked. You, know, you can't talk about it. It's, it's, it's one of the things you have to sort of see. Because we had great precision, and all we would do is I'd hand him a rifle, he'd hand me the rifle, and Rudy would, you know, make a little noise. And that's it. It was about as ludicrous as something you could possibly do, and it, all, and it worked in all circumstances. And, and I think on, in the pilot, you performed that with them. Did we? Yeah. We did that Periodically. Even after, you know, we all
0: stopped doing that. Rudy DeLuca, by the way, for those of you who know, uh, High Anxiety is the, the, the guy with the metal teeth, the killer. Uh, but uh, do, do any traces uh, exist of this stuff? Is there anything on beta, or I, is it lost I, to the ages?
2: It's pretty much gone, because in those days, you know, when they would, in other words, they used to, you know, you had to do the show, and you can get a kinescope of it. Right. You know, they didn't have even the video of it, and it cost us too much money to get a kinescope, so we couldn't afford it. And when we finally got some money to like get the kinescopes, they went, No, 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 we got rid of all that stuff. So everything that we had
0: done was all erased. No home movies, nothing. Zero. Wow. And
1: and you said before acting or writing or directing you were in radio.
2: I was wanting to be in radio. And uh, <laughs> and I didn't have that radio, you know, voice. And when I was in American university, um, the and I got a chance to be on radio. and But they said, you know, radio, because it was FM. And they said, FM means fine music. And so I started to play, you know, some rock and roll, you know. And then they they said, no, you can't do that. You cannot possibly do it. And you have to play classical music. But I, I so wanted to be a DJ. And, you know, that kind of DJ voice, which I didn't really have. But I would I would do it this way, you know. You know, okay. Up next, we got Beethoven coming your way. Full blast! Here we go. The Fifth. <laughs> and, then they sw- and then they threw me off the radio.
0: <laughs> so you actually started in lo- officially in local television. That's that
2: kind of. The I the went first, to local TV
0: after yeah, that. The first legit kind of legit show job. Yeah, I was job.
2: I was basically at American University and I'd taken courses, and I would do the Ranger House show in the morning. Then I run back and take a class, and I come back and do the news, and then. Uh, I'd mentioned before is that before they had the computers, it, when you would uh, do the late show or the late, late show, you had to roll the commercials into the, into the show. So, you know, you'd see a little mark on the screen and you say, stand by 10 seconds and then you'd roll and you go to the slide, the late show, then you go to the commercials. And, and that's what you would do. And that's where I saw in a sense, my education in terms of films, because I saw films that I had never seen. Others, I never heard of Citizen Kane. I mean, I did something I never heard of. I remember going back to the diner with the guys. Did you ever see this movie called Citizen Kane? They went, what? said, Citizen Kane, you know, it sounds boring. What is that? And so we had no knowledge because those films, which were in the early 40s, you know, they, they were just coming to television and we would never have seen them in a movie theater. So all of those classic films I, I saw, and I'll tell you one quick thing, because you used to roll the... the the, the late show would begin at 1130 at night and would go until whenever it ended. And then there'd be the late, late show. And one night uh, at the first commercial break, the film runs out and you can see going 9. I go, I go to the slide, you know, and says the late show. And then we go back and I couldn't figure out why, you know, it ran out at the wrong time. And all of a sudden at 10 minutes to 12, Glenn Ford is in it. And all of a sudden it goes, the end at 10 to 12. And we, we, we realize is that the last reel got put up first. So at 11.30, you're watching the last reel, and we go to the slide, and the, uh, the, the booth announcer is great. He says, And now for the beginning of the man from the Alamo.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. This is a big television station. Uh, it wasn't some small little thing. No one called up and said... Why didn't you play the last reel first? <laughs> not one person, not one complaint. That we, and, and so, therefore, we saw the last reel, and then at 10 minutes to 12 is the first reel, and not one complaint.
0: I love it. Now, we talked backstage. I'm going to make you tell the, the George story because it's so interesting. I mean, your origin, I've, I've researched 175 guests, and, you, and your, <laughs> your, uh, your beginnings in show business, it's a very strange journey. You were in Baltimore, obviously. You had no designs yeah. on being a filmmaker. I've heard you say you didn't even know who to ask no, in have. Baltimore how to begin.
2: I didn't even have an idea about anything. And at a certain point after working in local television, and then at some point I quit. And then I, I drove across country and ended up in, uh, in Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach area. And I was broke, didn't really know what to do. And I ran into this guy named George, and we would hang around together, you know. And, uh, and he had a friend, and we would hang out. And at some point, we sort of pulled our resources and got a little apartment, you know, and did that. one day, George came up to me and says, I got to go into Hollywood. And my car broke down. Can you give me a ride? I said, all right, because I had not been up into Hollywood. I'm just down at the beach. And so we drive up there. We pull up. And he says, uh, come on in. I said, well, where are you going? He said, well, I want to check out uh, this, you know, acting class. I said, acting class? I'll wait in the car. I don't, I don't like that stuff with acting. And he said, no, 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 come on in, you will feel obligated. So he drags me in, we go in there. And after the class is over, it's a couple hours, he, he ends up um, signing up, and we're riding back, and it's an hour away from the beach from Hollywood. And he said, you know, you ought to join. I said, what am I going to do? He said, well, you know, it doesn't matter. There were some good-looking girls in the class, you know, and, you know, we'll just be in that, you know, acting world, you know, we'll just do that stuff. And so... I said, but I don't want to be an actor. He said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So, he's, so I ended up going back the next day, you know. And so I tell the acting teacher I want to join. And, uh, and I said, but I don't want to do anything. <laughs> he said, what do you mean you don't want to do anything? I said, I don't want to act. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I just watch, you know. He said, no, you can't watch. You either have to be in the acting class and do the exercises or, or don't. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll, do it, you know. So now George and I go back and forth an hour each way. We split driving, et cetera. And then about two months in, George, you know, gets bored, and he doesn't really want to go anymore. And he'd rather just sit in front of the, the TV in a beach chair, and he used to smoke a joint. And, and I'd be going up and back by myself. And at some point I said, George, you know, I, I – uh, you know, I'm, I'm driving, I'm doing all this, but you don't go to acting school and it's, I'm, I'm going to move up into Hollywood to be closer to the school because I'm beginning to like it. And I started doing the improv stuff and it was interesting and all of that was happening. So I moved out. Now, you know, obviously, this is an age before cell phone. So literally within weeks, I, I can't can't reach him anymore and I never see him again. Never. I don't see him anymore. So if somebody ever said, how did you get into the business, I'll say, well, because George, the acting school, the acting school led to improvs, and improvs led to, you know, writing and performing, and ultimately it led to, you know, directing, et cetera. And it's all basically with George. And they said, so what happened to George? I never saw him again. Never saw him. So I go to the movies, like years 2000, I'm with my wife and go see this movie, you know, it's called Blow. And it begins as Manhattan Beach, 1968. I said, Manhattan Beach? I was there in 1968. <laughs> then I hear a voice go, uh, hey, George, you want to say, George? I knew a guy named George, right? Now, if you saw the movie, it's starring you know, Johnny Depp. And it's about this guy named George Young, and, uh, who became the largest cocaine dealer in <laughs> North America. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the George... That I drove up into Hollywood, and George was basically responsible for, you know, everything that took place because of that ride to there. And that was George. Now, I'll just tell you one little thing. He was in jail forever, and I never saw him. And basically, I hadn't hadn't talked to him since 1968. So I tracked tracked him down. I find him one place. And he had gotten out of jail in 2015. And so I'm talking to him. He said, you know, I, I, I'm always remembering He's, that you would always say, you know, George, you know, you, you, know, you, you know, you're fucking around. You sell a little bag of grass. You got to stop that shit. You're going to get into trouble. He said, you know, you're going to get into trouble with this drug stuff, you know, even though it's nickel dime stuff. He said, I always remember that. And then he said, you know, uh, I got involved in the cocaine and all that stuff and comes the biggest cocaine dealer. And I'm arrested one day, I'm in handcuffs, I'm being led into the, into the police station, and I look up and there's a television is on, and it's the Academy Awards. And then it said, you know, and best director, Barry Levinson. And he said, I looked at that, and I'm in handcuffs, and all I can remember is you saying, George, you know, you got to stop selling that kind of <laughs> stuff.
0: <laughs> Amazing.
1: Right, right now, I have to go to the bathroom, so we're gonna play these commercials and then get back to the show.
0: Too much info. Oh, yeah!
1: <laughs> Gilbert and Frank, what's your game now? Can anybody
0: play? Hey, Gil.
1: Live from Nutmeg Post, <laughs> <laughs> we now return to Gilbert and Frank's amazing, colossal podcast. Now, you said in an interview that years ago, you and your friends used to say that Gentile girls were punctual.
0: Yes. <laughs> I never know where you're going to go, Gil. That was an interesting direction. All right, now, but, but <laughs> here's, the, here's, the, here's the part of
2: that, because we always said, you know, Jewish girls, it takes forever. You go over there, you know, you're going to go, right. you know... You know, is Sheila ready? You know, come on in. She'll be down in a minute, you know, and blah, 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 and whatever. You meet the mother and the father. You know, what does your father do? Well, he's in the appliance business. Oh, where's the store? Blah, 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 the whole thing. Does he know? So It's like a major ordeal. You go, to, you go to see a Gentile girl's house. You ring the doorbell. Boom, she's at the door. She's ready to go. And you're gone. And we thought, so we always said, you know, Gentile girls are very punctual. But the reality is, which didn't occur to us, is they were punctual because they didn't want us to come into the house? <laughs> because then they have to say, "Dad, Mom, this is Barry Levinson." <laughs> so, our naive is that we thought that they were punctual as yeah. opposed to, "I've got to get out of the house as fast as I can." I mean, sometimes they were just literally on the steps waiting.
0: <laughs> you picked that up in your research, Gil? Yes. That's good stuff. Yes. <laughs> There's, I watched uh, I rewatched Liberty Heights today and there's that great scene where they see the the, the sign uh on the fence no no dogs Jews yeah. or, or coloreds yeah. and and they're and uh, they're commenting about the the sequence of the names.
2: Yeah, how do they come up with which one was the biggest nuisance right. yeah, at the at the pool. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And you wonder like, you know, I mean and, and it was and I have to tell you one crazy thing to that is at one point I said, you know, the title Liberty Heights and and this was a time in the business changing. So trying to do a personal movie it gets harder and harder to do. So one day out of frustration, I'm talking to the head of the studio. So why don't we like call it um, instead of Liberty Heights, call it, uh, you know, Jews, Gentiles, and Color People. That'll be the that'll be the title <laughs> of the movie. So rather than saying, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> the question was, "Why does it have to be Jews first? <laughs>
0: Well, like so. I said, we jump all over the place, but <laughs> Bef- Before we move into the movies, quickly, I, I just want to know, too, you're saying the improv led to something, led to something. What what came first? You guys were doing the improv. You were doing sketches in clubs. In, cl- in class first. In class first. Yeah. Then clubs. Then clubs. And, and then was then it the Tim Conway show first? No, no,
2: that. Well, Tim Conway was the first. Uh, the, the first thing we did, there was a show called Loman and oh, Barkley. Loman and Barkley. It was on 1130 to 1 o'clock in the morning. And there were uh, four writers... There were four of us, Craig, myself, Rudy, and this guy named Paul. And it was 90 minutes of material.
0: And there were four of us. I think John Amos told us he was on that show. John
2: Amos was, uh, he was on the show as well. And so we had to come up with all this material. And we would do stuff that would just be a disaster. And then sometimes we hit on some sketches that really worked, you know. And uh, that was one year of that, constantly doing that type of material. In fact, I, I was just actually writing about that period. And uh, it, was, it, it was a great learning process because we would do some sketches that, that literally not a, a smile from the audience, you know, just deadly, <laughs> deadly. And then some things would, uh, you know, work. We did a sketch one time that went out of control because it was a live show. And it was originally going to be, it was called The Lawyers and the Pigs. And now this shows you how, like, you know, nuts that you can get when you're doing something all the time. We said, wouldn't it be funny? We'll wear, like, suits and we'll carry little piglets under our arms. And we never addressed that we have piglets. We just have piglets. You know, we'll be like, Your Honor, may I, you know, approach the bench? You know, I mean, we'd have a pig. And the judge would have a pig, too. You know, the prosecution, defense. everyone has a little piglet under our arm. We thought that was a funny idea for, like, two and a half minutes, you know. So we, you know, we run back, we change, we get into the thing, we come to the, and the prop guy got pigs. I mean, like 75, 80 pound pigs. Not pigs, <laughs> pigs, And they're going, 10 seconds, and They go, holy God, I can't even carry the pig, you know? So I ended up having a rope around mine, I get them to the defense table, and we all have pigs, and the pigs go crazy. You know? <laughs> And I, I have mine with the rope around him, and he's, he's running on the, on the defense table, but not going anywhere. There's clip-clop, 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 <laughs> like that, etc. Craig's, he was trying to hold in his arms. had sort of crawled around his back and then started to pee <laughs> and just kept peeing. Now, it was so, the laughter was so loud, we could not hear one another at all. We had to wait for it. And, but I remember looking around. And you'd see somebody like fall out of their seat on the floor, convulsed in laughter, etc. The sketch was supposed to run two and a half minutes because it's a, a, you know, it's a sight gag thing. It was 14 minutes because you couldn't get the audience to stop laughing to get on with it. And the pigs were out of control. And I could just imagine somebody at home going, honey, come take a look at this. (laughs) And so some things hit, some things worked, some things were disaster. But that was like the learning ground of starting to play around with uh It's a trial ideas. by
0: fire having to create that, that much material. Constantly. That led to the Tim Conway show? Or? That led to the
2: Tim Conway show.
0: Right. Yeah. And then Marty Feldman and then, and Marty then Feldman. the Carol Burnett show?
2: Yeah, Marty Feldman was a great experience. I mean, a really great experience. And Larry Gelbart, who wrote a funny thing away at the Forum, and he did the TV series, you know, MASH, uh, and he was the producer. And it's when you meet somebody like that in, in the business, and they're so quick... And so funny. It was, like, shocking. And you go, well, you know, I guess that's why he's the producer, head writer. I mean, that guy, you know. And, and it was really amazing. And then it was odd that when we got to work with Mel, because Mel and Larry Gelbart, you know, right. go back to the Sid Caesar, you know, days.
0: Yeah. And
2: so he was an amazing guy.
0: Larry Gelbart. Yeah. yeah. What a guy to learn from.
2: Incredible. And what was Mel Brooks like to work with? It was the best... Um, you know, it, it was one of those great experiences, because what we would do, we would, we'd, we'd have breakfast, we would write, we went to lunch, then we would write, and, you know, he would, he, he would tell stories and things or whatever, but he included you, so that for instance, not only just in the writing of it, but then ultimately... in the casting of it and then we were there when it was being shot and because he was in the film we would be watching on the monitors and now you're looking at at that and then you talk to him about it and you were there during the editing process so for three years for two movies that's what you did all the time and then you you know your brain starts to go gee I wonder if you do this what happens if you did that what happens how would that work if you and that was the beginning of thinking about it and then Mel was the one, because I would tell him the stories about guys at the diner and the friends that I knew. And Mel was the one to say, you know, you should write about that. And mentioned uh, Fellini, you know, it was, uh, y- mm-hmm. as,
0: as,
2: a, as a piece about, you know, guys, et cetera, you know, growing up in a sense. And so he had actually mentioned that. So he was incredible. I mean, but, and truly maybe the funniest person I've ever, you know, come upon. And, and you've been and around a lot and of when he people. would get when he would get frustrated by something then he was even funnier i mean literally fall down on the ground laughing over certain things
0: he was generous he let you into the process completely yeah
1: and if if i'm not mistaken In high anxiety, you were the bellboy. Yes. Oh, Dennis, the newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, that was a Jack Benny reference. Yeah, that was so funny. Yeah, Yeah. Jack Riley. Jack Riley
0: hits the bell and goes, "Oh, Dennis." Oh, (laughs) Dennis.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't
0: get in 1976.
2: And I had that, you know, newspaper going here, 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 (laughs) stabbing him in the shower scene. Uh, like
0: Psycho. You were actually trying to imitate the the strings, the Bernard Herman. Yeah. yeah,
2: I was making I was making fun of one day Bernard Herman's music that had that, <laughs> ah, 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 that in the stabbing, and I was going here, here, here. here. And, and Mel said, "You got to do that. <laughs> you have got to do that. we had a real high voice, you know." And I have to tell you one thing: I was in a store one time. This has got to be like. 10 years after the movie, and I'm in the store, and there's this guy looking at me, and I'm moving around. The guy's like looking at me, and I'm thinking, I don't know, is this guy sort of, I don't know what's going on? I'm thinking, like, maybe some killer or something, you know? <laughs> he's just looking at me, and I'm moving, and he's kind of like moving, and then eventually he walked over and he said, Were you Dennis the Bellhop? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, of all the things. Right, you know, that's I, it. That's what he remembers. I you said, from. Yes, yes.
1: And and there were a lot of people in high anxiety that seemed like they were probably just friends, I mean, known friends of uh, Mel Brooks,
2: like. Yes. Jolly well, Callas. Yeah.
0: yeah. Glorious Leachman. Yeah. Well, Harvey, you'd worked with before. Yeah. Burnett.
2: Yeah. It, it, they were incredible. I mean, there are those little, and we did those sort of um, camera jokes, you know, the cameras moving in on. You know how it is, the French doors, people are inside talking and the camera keeps moving in and moves in and then hits the the glass of the door and breaks it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can hear, like, you know, back up, back up, you know, and then the camera's backing up. And, you know, so we were doing some of these visual, you know, jokes as well. So we had that in there. It was a great experience.
0: Do you remember a, a, spe- a specific contribution you made to a gag you you contributed to either film? I don't, I know you know, several. I never remember what it is. Really?
2: Literally, you know, and I think it's at the best when you don't know it's some things evolve, you know, and, uh, you know, I remember about, you know, the burn on Herman thing, you know, because of that specifically, but I I can't remember much of it. Mel was like Mel could say things in a a sense that most people can't get away with. You know, it's part of his like I remember once we were in the um, they had the executive dining room. And uh, Marvin Davis had bought the studio. Now, Marvin Davis at that time was a huge, huge man, huge, just gigantic. And when he came in, everybody got quiet, and he sat down, you know, and after a few minutes, everybody started talking again. And then at some point, he, he stood up to leave, and everybody got quiet, and he went out. And as soon as the door slammed, Mel yelled out, did you ever see such a fat man in your whole life? <laughs> 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 and, 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 he could say those things and just just break everybody up. And I get mean, away with oh, it. Oh, yeah, and yeah. get away with it. There's something about his, his, his personality, et cetera, that he can, he can do that stuff. And who wrote the song, High
1: Anxiety?
2: Mel. Mel? Yeah. You know. And he, I'll never forget, he was so you – know, he wanted – when the Academy Award nominations came out for High Anxiety – he wasn't bothered, and he didn't get nominated, you know, for for screenplay or any of those things. He was so angry that the song didn't get nominated. <laughs> he, I, he said, I just wanted to go on the Academy Awards with a tuxedo and sing, you know, Ziety, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and his sort of Sinatra-like, you know, take on it. He was so, but he was genuinely angry, you know, like we get when his face gets tight like that and everything. <laughs> He wanted so much to sing the theme from High anxiety. Well, we,
0: Norman Steinberg told us he kind of takes himself seriously as, as a musician. That he, he knows music.
2: He does know yeah, music.
0: Yeah.
2: I, I don't think he can play it.
0: No, but he, but he, he, sings he, he has an ear.
2: Yeah. I,
1: I heard when he's considering people for his movies, he wants to hear them sing first. Because <laughs> <laughs> he
2: believes in music. and the rhythms and of music? Yeah. I, didn't, I don't think I remember
0: that taking place, but it makes sense. Why don't you tell Barry that you auditioned for, for Mel Brooks and what happened? Oh, He'll my God.
1: It, right? <laughs> oh, my one? God. I once auditioned for not one of his better movies. Life stinks. <laughs> <laughs> and so I auditioned and people were going, oh, you know, I, we think you'd be perfect. All the usual things. Everyone's talking about you. We think you're perfect. And, and I wound up losing out the part. And I said, well, who are they replacing me with? And they said, Billy
0: Barty. <laughs> if you don't know who Billy Barty is, Google it immediately.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: He was a midget,
2: basically.
1: He was a famous midget. So
2: remember... you lost because you were too tall. Yeah. yeah.
0: You could justify it
2: by saying that. Yeah, I I was up for the role I didn't get. I was too tall, too tall. And I remember two jokes
1: in particular on high anxiety, just because they're so stupid and you laugh out loud. One of them is like this, one of the top psychiatrists is Howard Morris. And, um... He starts talking and Mel interrupts him and he goes, doctor, is this really Nessa? And he goes, yes, it's Nessa. It's very Nessa. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Little Old Man. Yes. yes. That was his name. (laughs) Little Old Man. The other one was Charlie Callis. Thought he was a Cocker Spaniel. Right. Yes, right. And then they find out that, oh, um, what's her name? The actress. Oh, God.
0: Madeline Kahn.
1: Madeline Kahn. It, that's her father. Yeah, and and he says to him, "So you're the cocker's daughter." <laughs>
0: <laughs> the stuff you hold on to,
1: yes, amazes yes. me.
0: So, so Mel gave you the encouragement to to take a shot with yes. Diner. Yeah, he encouraged you because you were telling the stories about the, the guys. I would in... talk
2: about it, and he said, "You should write a movie about that." And I couldn't figure out how to do it until eventually, the 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 idea that it would be the last five days of 1959, you know, ending with a wedding on New Year's Eve, and then once I hit that, then I was able to write it. But he would he would talk to me. He'd mention it periodically. So he he really was influential in in so many
0: ways. You know. And you banged out Diner in what? Do I have this right? Three weeks.
2: Just writing it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I always write fast anyway. I, I I I always I write in a sense that I believe there is someone else writing the same thing somewhere else. Oh,
0: that's interesting. And I have to write
2: faster than that
0: person. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> Even something as personal as that, yeah. which was unlikely that Some, somebody yeah. else was writing that. But you put that in your head. I
2: got to go fast. Yeah. It's
0: catching up. I also find it interesting that you write, sometimes you write with a song in your head. I read that you, when you were writing Tin Men, you had Sweet Lorraine in your head, which yeah, I, I find I, interesting.
2: I, I play a song um, sort of like a little bizarre, crazy. You know, in the old days, you know, you have to put the record on and then play the song and then put the, go back to it. Now you can just hit repeat, you know, with uh, digital. So uh, sometimes I'll look and see how many times they play it, and I might say like 175 times that same piece of music over and over and over and over again. Somehow I lock into it, it, it for whatever reason. It motivates mm-hmm.
1: me. Now, also on this podcast and in my day-to-day life, I'm always pointing out <laughs> What famous person's a Jew? Really? (laughs) (laughs) In fact, in the lobby, somebody came up to me and told me that one of the singers in T-Rex is a Jew. Mark Mm -hmm. Bolin? Yes. So he wanted me to know that. (laughs) Did you know that? Okay. And and you said that's like, I told you this, and you said it's like your grandmother. My grandmother, uh,
2: (laughs) she would, she like... uh, In the 50s, um, you know, uh, Eddie Fisher got divorced from Debbie Reynolds, you know. And she would just go, you know, what he didn't do with his life. (laughs) You know, same thing with Tony Curtis when he got divorced. Oh, my God, what he didn't do with his life. And there would always be these people (laughs) that somehow, and they were, you know, they were Jewish. I didn't even know they were Jewish, you know. I didn't know Tony Curtis was Jewish, you know. I, I knew Eddie Fisher because it sounded Jewish. But, you know, Tony Curtis doesn't sound Jewish. And I said that one day, and she went, Bernie Schwartz! <laughs> she, just, she yelled at me, like, like, I should know this, you know. <laughs> it's like, what kind of Jewish person are you? you don't know? Bertie Schwartz! You know, she had to tell me.
1: And, and what was Harvey Corman like in real life?
2: He was, uh, you know, he could be so outgoing, etc. I don't remember him that way in person, like when, you know, when Carol Burnett, when he would do these he, I- incredibly, you know, extravagant characters, and he can really pull it off. But I, in, in real life, he always seemed to be, you know, sort of somewhat quiet. That was my, you know, interpretation.
0: Was Bernie it. Coppell told us that he did Hamlet. Wasn't it, Gil?
2: Oh, yeah. He did, he did yeah. he did Shakespeare. He did a convincing. Yeah, no, he was, yeah. he, he was a, you know, he was a good actor. He was great with Carol. You know he was terrific at uh, at setting her up and uh, all of that. I mean he was. You know we we were talking about straight men, yeah, and how important that is. And he was perfect for Carol.
1: And he and 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 Conway were friends.
2: Yes, they were, and they were great together. We used to write sketches when we were doing the Burnett show. We wrote a lot of the the uh, the little old man that uh, Tim Conway would play, uh-huh. and. Uh, I remember uh, one sketch uh, where Harvey gets into the cab and he says, you know, to the airport, and, you know, and make it snappy. And then there's like a long pause. And then, you know, Tim Conway is the little old man, you know, turned after like 15 seconds ago, where to? <laughs> 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 you know, and, and right away, because it's longer than that, you know, Harvey's trying to hold it in, and then he said, the the airport. And then, and then uh, Tim gets out the, o- the old Thomas guy, and he goes, airport A- <laughs> go, Thomas AI A- A- I. And he says, just drive, and I'll tell you where they go. And, I mean, they were priceless together,
0: you know. When you watch Blazing Saddles, I mean, there's so many good things about it, but he's as good as anything in the movie. Oh, he's- He's, he's just he's, stellar. He's, he's perfect. Yeah. Brilliant. So, we'll talk about Diner a little bit. And I, uh, you know, t- t- tell us uh, this. I found this interesting. For one thing, Paul Reiser did not actually come with the intent of no. auditioning.
1: I, I, I know the comic who they had in. Really? Yes. That's good trivia. Yes.
2: Who was the comic? I can't remember
0: now. Oh, I he
1: he died, so that makes it okay for me to mention
2: him. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I,
1: there was this guy, he never got famous. He was no. just like around, you know, catching and the improv. Uh, Michael Hampton Kane. Is that who it was? Yeah. He was up for, well, he was up to audition. Yeah. And he ran into Paul Reiser along the way. They were friends. And and Reiser, and he said to Reiser, he goes, I got to do this audition. Uh, why don't you come with me, uh, we'll have lunch afterwards.
0: Right, something like that,
1: yeah. And then I think they saw the two of them kidding with each other back and forth.
0: Was it Ellen Chenoweth who heard him, kind of kidding? El- Ellen
2: Chenoweth right? heard him, Paul, Yeah. and came in and said, you know, there's a guy out there, you know, he's not supposed to, you know, I didn't bring him in, but he's really interesting, you ought to meet him. And I met him and we talked, and, and I hired him. He actually never really read anything. I just hired him. I liked the way he talked, and uh, and I had a lot of stuff that I was thinking about using that I didn't want to put in the script because I I, I knew enough that a lot of you know the, the studio people reading certain things would go I don't know what the hell that is you know and so I had him and then I would literally talk to him about stuff and I would hand him some things and he had this way of of talking he had a rhythm to it mm-hmm. he had a sound and. Uh, I was able to, you know, move them through the film that way.
0: It's interesting too the reactions when you term, when you started showing people the screenplay. Was it your agent that said, "I don't know what this is"? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
2: everything about you know, diner. I, I gave it to my agent who who called and said, "I don't know what this is. What is this?" <laughs> I said, "What do you mean? It's about people growing up, young guys." So yeah, but I don't understand what is this. There's nothing here, and I I explained it to him. This was Michael Lovitz, and I explained it, and, and 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 the good thing about him is, is, I'm going to cancel my lunch, I want to read this again. And he called me after lunch and said, you know something, I feel like an idiot. I, now I see what you're talking about. Because somehow they didn't get it. But then, of course, even when I did the film and I showed it to a studio executive, and I, I, I met him, and he said, uh, well, you got a lot to learn about editing. And I said, yeah, well, like, example. He said, you know, the... The guy asked for about if you're going to eat the roast beef sandwich, you know, uh, and he says something, you know, cut, you know, cut, just get on with the story. Don't have them keep talking about the roast beef. (laughs) They're going to eat it or not going to eat it. Get on with the story. I said, but that is the story. I said, that in a sense explains a relationship as opposed to talking about a relationship. In other words, because people who have a close relationship don't say, how long have we known each other? We don't, do, we don't do that. We don't talk that way. We talk sideways. We're always talking sideways. We're never on the point. We seldom do it. We're always never wanting to quite respond the way it is. And so, therefore, that's the way the piece is built. And I didn't convince them because they didn't like it and didn't want it released. And actually, the movie was never going to be seen. And it's only by chance that it got out.
0: You thought your movie career was over, pretty I much. I thought that was about it. yeah.
2: You know, Mel had a great, a great example about, you know, when you go see your film uh, first time with, a, you know, an audience and you have a cut of it, he says, like, you've got a barometer and you're watching the audience reaction and you're going like, good, good. I'm out of the business. Good, good. I'm out of the business. <laughs> and love that. And so that's the way I felt was like, oh, they don't like it at all. It's like, you know, it, they thought it was literally I might as well have done a foreign film at one point i said you know it's not that they're subtitles this is the people talking because they didn't want to show it here they didn't want it and then eventually it came you know to new york Mm -hmm. and uh and then broke the house record and and then they still didn't believe it so diner never played nationwide at any one time it only went from city to city to city and played for one year
0: amazing
1: was it uh ellen barkin uh, you had there was some actress. The script was sent to Ellen she, Barkin. Yeah, Ellen
2: Barkin, she, because she was going with uh, an actor at that time, and um, he comes in, he's doing something, and he sees this, you know, script, and, and uh, I think she was out or was doing something or whatever. So he's looking at the script and he reads it, and he said, "You know, what? Is I see script in the script in the trash here, and she says, oh, it's terrible. It's no good.'" And he said. Ellen, you really should read this thing because I think it's really good, and then she read it, and she went oh and and that happened so that whatever it is about it <clears throat> back then um a lot of people didn't get what was on the page, you know because you're talking about what's on the flip side of the record is is about the relationship and the and how do we relate to one another and mm-hmm. and all of that stuff rather than talking about that and so so that's the way I always thought um, dialogue should be to understand character and behavior. That that to me. You know, the one thing is sometimes you, you know, someone will say, well, the, who would have been an influence in terms of uh, writing? And it only occurred to me, I don't know, maybe a, a dozen years ago, is that when I was a kid and I saw Marty on television, and it was still before it went to being a film, and... In it, there's a little scene where the guy said, uh, um, what do you want to do tonight, Marty? And he said, I don't know, Angie, what do you want to do? I thought that was maybe the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And as a kid, I'd walk around going, what do you want to do tonight, Marty? I don't know. What do you want to do, Angie? And I would just say that all the time. And it, it stayed in my head. And then when I think about, finally, to Diner, the, it, the whole movie is, what do you want to do tonight, Angie? It is, it is the most common, normal pieces of dialogue that ultimately are the most influential in right. terms of how we behave, how we act and interact with one another.
0: And the film winds up informing and inspiring future generations of writers. Obviously, you saw the piece in Vanity Fair where they said that Seinfeld... Yeah. And 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 Pulp Fiction and and well, it, Stephen it, Merchant and Judd Apatow even said that, that they have diner running in their heads when yeah, they write those scenes. Yeah,
2: no, I was very flattered. I mean, I, I met Judd and he was talking about that. Uh, it to me, it was the find a way to bury plot elements and not celebrate the plot. Is to celebrate the characters, the relationships, and obviously you got to have some kind of plot. You got to have something. It can't just be adrift, but to try to hide it. On right. first view, right.
1: Well, it, it's funny because you said the line, "How how well how long have we known each other?" As far and and that's one of those lines when you hear that, if this is to tell the audience, yes, right. It's just like, hey, you and me, we've been friends for years, right?
2: Which is the, which we don't do. So the question is, how do we? How do, we, how do we tell the audience that, that there's all these rituals that go on without, without explaining? And so that is buried in the movie and in the behavior. You want
0: to finish that? Yeah, I'm going to finish
2: it. I paid for it. I'm going to give it to you. No. If you're not going to finish
0: it, I would eat it. But if you're going to eat it, you're going to what do you want? Say the words. No, go ahead. Yeah, you're going to eat it. You eat it. That's all
2: right. Say the words. I want the roast beef sandwich. Say the words and I'll give Look, you a piece. Would you guys cut
0: this out? I mean, every time. Anything. Well, if he doesn't talk, he just... Well, you he, know what he it means, right? Yeah, I know what he means, but he beats around the bush. He beats around the bush. If he'd say the words, I'd give him a piece. If I wanted it, but I, wouldn't I ask you? No, that ask. You would know you... Just you just let it go? You know he wants You're it. annoying. I'm how. annoying. I'm annoying. I'm trying to eat a meal by myself. If you want to give him the sandwich, give him the sandwich. If you don't want to give him the sandwich, don't... You know, I don't want to give him the... Well, then just eat the sandwich Then shut don't, up. Well, look at his eyes. I ask one simple question. You get You know what your problem is?
2: You don't chew your food. That's why you get so irritable. <laughs> it, it, it lumps you up, like, roast beef in your heart. It just stays there.
1: And you said, and once again, this before Seinfeld, you said that diners signified
2: nothing. Um I don't know. Did I say that?
1: Uh yeah. Yeah, that was in interview.
2: <laughs> I may have because it's what what I what I meant by it is it's simple but it's about everything and it's a, on face value it's about nothing because in it there are these relationships of which each person has a dilemma about the you know the marriage and, and making this transition And the problems of one being married and not being able to quite relate to her and and she to him in terms of what's important in terms of that interaction. So each one has a a dilemma to it,
0: but you're never talking about the dilemma. I've always seen it as a movie about men's inability, ongoing inability to communicate with women and and to to connect. Yes,
2: yes. because we can't ever really say what we want to say. So things have a tendency... To go sideways.
0: Who was it that saw the football quiz and said that would never happen? And, and you had
2: to. Was um, a few people did. But my, my cousin Eddie, who did give you know, his <laughs> wife <laughs> right, a, it really a football test. But here's the best part of it. Because he, he was as stubborn a person as you could ever meet. And, uh, and so uh, he would do things like, you know, you couldn't get out of the car if Frank Sinatra's song was on. Because which was
0: in Liberty Heights. Which is
2: in Liberty Heights right. because he would be a friend offensive
0: to <laughs> that Frank. That's great. That's great.
2: I said, Frank's not in the car. It doesn't matter. You don't leave until Sinatra finishes the song. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he did say, he said, you know, Barry, I saw Diner five times and I realized it was a mistake, you know, to give my wife the football test. I said, really? He said, yeah, you know, because two weeks after marriage, she can't remember a fucking answer. <laughs> It was a waste of time. That, that was just, that's what he learned. From
0: it. You know, Gil, somebody actually wrote into the show to say they love the commercials. So this is for you. Hey, fans of John Gabrus, his premium podcast The Layman is back for its second season on Stitcher Premium. John loves science as you guys know, but also finds it pretty hard to grasp. What do you think, Gil?
1: I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I don't know when you when you talk. I kind of <laughs> you tune zone out, out, do you? Yeah.
0: Well, in the layman, John goes to the experts. He goes to doctors exploring the frontiers of the mind, outer space, and beyond, and he asks them to break it down in terms we can all understand. Even you, yeah. Normally, if it's not about Burgess Meredith, you have no interest whatsoever. Yeah, or Lionel, Atwell, or Lionel Jr. Atwill. <laughs> Hear John Gabbard's <laughs> chat with molecular scientists, uh, stem cell researchers, and many more. In five whole new episodes of The Layman, to learn more about The Layman and hear episode one, go to stitcherpremium.com slash layman.
1: I wouldn't be able to pronounce molecular. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can't even pronounce Layman.
1: <laughs> boom
2: boom.
0: just kidding it's all frank
1: now back to the show now what are some because i mean that hits upon when we were talking before about like telling the audience what are some of the things as a director that annoy you that you see in movies
2: oh gee well there's a there's a well it it depends i mean because it sometimes it comes from different places sometimes the music tells you it's going to be important. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doo, doo, doo. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Something's <laughs> about to happen here. You know what I mean? and, and so that bothers me. Uh, explaining when you know they're explaining to tell you what's going on, you know, is, is certainly one. Um, but there, I, I can't think of a number of them off, offhand, but there are those things where it's a little, it's telegraphed, you know. In, in ways and when it's when it's done well in some of these movies, it's priceless. it's just priceless.
0: Tell us how Tin men came about uh, You recall, You called it the other side of the diner.
2: Yeah because you know when you have an assistant director and uh, we're getting it straight and so we had some guys older guys to the right and I said, no 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 when you come in the diner the younger guys are to the right and the Tin men are to the left. And he said, well, what is that? I said, the tin men. That's where the tin men, the guys who sell aluminum siding, they're on the left. And that was sort of like the way it was sort of laid out. And, of course, no female could come in, period. You know, I mean, that was just sort of, uh, I didn't actually even cover that in diner. But that's how, when you think about how crazy, you know, things were. That if you had a date, you went, you took her to Mandel's, which was across the street from the diner. You'd have... A bite to eat, you know, before going home. Then you'd drop her off. Then you would go to the diner, on the other side of the Interesting. street. Interesting. And so, the, no female was, you know, allowed in there, except during the day. Then it was sort of like a family thing. But once night came, it was just a guy's world.
0: So you just you overheard these guys. You you familiarize yourselves with some of the, with some of the scams over oh, yeah, the no, over the, the years.
2: Where I couldn't even get enough. I couldn't put some in because I was afraid people might not believe it. But, you know, the, 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 those guys would sell kitchen cabinet things and all this kind of hustle. And one point, you were saying, now, look, you can, uh, a kitchen cabinet, this is terrific, whatever. And then the, the, point, the woman's pointing, well, what about this one here? Said, well, that's, that's a much cheaper one. You don't want to go that way. But, you know, this one here, it's a little more expensive, but it's better. Said, so, but that, but what about this one? She said, oh well, look, if you want to go, you know, with the the cheaper one, okay, you know. Uh, but let me ask you, what size uh, hat do you wear? And he says, well, it's a what? Well, why? He said, well, you know, we got to get you like a hard hat, you know. Well, why do I need that? Well, you can't guarantee that kitchen cabinet's not going to fall off the wall. And and they would do things where they would make a deal and they would quickly because once you start at work on it they can't get out of the deal oh. you know what i mean so what they would literally do is sometimes they would they would make the deal with the person sign the paper go and and then take the paint and right on, on the side of the building start here and paint it on the side of the uh, of the of the house which means the job is already begun and therefore the person can't re- you know renege on that and those kinds of hustlers you know, went on, you know, and they were all slick-looking, and they all drove Cadillacs, and they would all go to the track, and they were conning people all the time.
0: You, I assume you knew Rodney Dangerfield was somebody. Yes, was
2: he, was a, he was a tin man.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were... And reportedly they, investigated and uh, changed his name to Rodney Dangerfield, too. That's, the Hyde? Well, we heard Cliff off yeah. as a writer uh, was on really? our show, and according to him, what was it, the Jack Roy, that there was something published in the newspaper. Yeah, there was
1: something really sleazy. That he was involved
0: in, and he was he was being pursued, or at least he thought a name change would leave that That's would help leave, 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 leave that. Yeah, would help so leave we that. We took a real
2: inconspicuous name like <laughs> a <of>
0: <laughs> <laughs> It's good trivia, anyway. You know, it's a t- I think it's a testament to the writing of that film too. And my wife watched it, and we watched it again the other night. That that even though these guys are conning people, you you feel sorry for them when it comes to an end. The scene where Dreyfus and and Danny DeVito have to turn in. Their licenses. Right. You actually have compassion. Yeah. Well, I mean, for look, this way of life that's dying,
2: that particular hustle was over.
0: Yeah, and then of course
2: the hustles in uh, America got worse, right? You got that banking crisis with billions of dollars. You know, these guys were like nickel and dime kind of you know hustlers, uh, or the the Madoff thing that I just did with you know De Niro counting people out of like you know sixty billion dollars, so that. The con artist exists. Of you course. Know, the Tin Man was like the low end of, uh, of the totem pole. And, you know, they went from that and they went into other types of things that, you know, after, when you, once you couldn't do that, aluminum siding, then you went on to, you know, other ways of hustle.
1: And there were uh, whole sections of dialogue in Tin Man that was, it sounded like comedy routines. It didn't sound like part of the dialogue. <laughs> I
0: was going to ask you about Jackie Gale specifically. Yeah.
2: So, he sounded like he was just doing bits. Oddly enough, actually, that was, <clears throat> as I remember, the two things you might point to was actually you know written when he was at the salad bar, about all these things come from the earth.
0: Right. Right. You where know? he sees where he he finds religion.
2: When he finds religion that you know here this came from the earth and whatever it may be, and the thing about bonanza. Right but it's not an actual depiction of the West. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if, if you guys haven't seen Tin Man, and, you don't, and you've and got to see the, this this movie, but specifically for Jackie Gale's Jackie riffs Gale's, on Bonanza.
2: Jackie Gale is so funny, because he does that, he does it so well, because he's talking about Bonanza, and he says, you know, he's, he he said, you know, that it's, it's three guys, you know, it's a father and two sons, you know, no one ever says, you know, I saw this girl, you know, I you know, that... The greatest, you know, like, you know, you know, I, I can't remember the dialogue, but he was basically saying, you know, I, you know, I had like a heart on, et cetera. Oh, There's yeah. The no greatest re- ass I've ever seen in my life. The greatest ass I've ever seen. Right. There was no reference to sex. Right. About anything. <laughs> These are three men.
0: A, a 50-year-old dad and 347 47-year-old <laughs> yes, sons. Right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Each, each one had a, he was married, you had a baby, and she died. Right. Right? <laughs> I think which is actually part of the, the way the show works. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right? It was the conceit of the and, show. And they had three
2: separate, you know, three, three separate wives.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And I've heard mixed, or Dustin Hoffman is one of those people you always hear of, you know, you'll hear these stories of he's such an intense actor and it could be difficult, but you worked with him a number of
2: times. Yeah. Well, I, I think the key to it is, and one of the best things, because it goes all the way back to studying for a few years, and I was there literally not almost all the time. And one of the best things, so when Dustin, when we first met, which was on Rayman, he said, you know, he had, he had this problem. And uh, I'll just tell you two things, because he said, you know, it says here when he gets agitated, he has this pitching motion he's got to go through, he says, it takes too long to do this pitching motion. I said, well, let me see. So he, I, he was showing me, and I went, yeah, that's not going to work. He said, oh, yeah, I don't know how to do that. And so I called him later on. I said, listen, when you get agitated, why don't you do uh, who's on first? And he said, well, what do, what do you mean? He said, you know, the Abbott and Costello routine. He said, well, who's going to be the other guy? I said, well, y- you do both. And it's not as a comedy thing. You do it, and I said, you know, you do who's on first, the first baseman. That's what I'm saying, the first baseman. Who? Who's on first, the first baseman. And you do it like a mantra. And so you do it that way because you wouldn't, an autistic doesn't necessarily understand the the humor of the piece. It is the rhythm of it that he was responding to. So when you're agitated, we'll we'll do that. And he went, oh, oh, okay, that that works. And... uh, so we got past it. So he did he did see an issue in what he originally had to do. And then when we started to shoot, <laughs> he, he he he's such a character. I mean I really like him. But we started to shoot the scene in the in a coffee shop. And I said after one take, I said, Dustin, you know, the when you're doing Raymond, he just seems, you know, depressed. You know, it's it's too depressed. I said, you know, autistic people, they're they're busy, you know, they're looking, you know, they're how many lights? They're, they're 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 you know they're just looking around. They're they're calculating. They're busy. And he said, "Oh, okay." So now we do another take. And so he's looking, and looking. And now Tom is saying, "You know, Ray, do you want to do so and so?" And Dustin is looking. Ray, do you want to do so? And then he, he doesn't ever respond to him. So I go, "Cut, what?" Uh, I, Dustin, Tom's talking to you. He said, well, you know, I, I didn't actually hear him. I got so involved in the lights <laughs> that I didn't, I didn't see him. I said, well, you, you you have to be able to hear him or we're not going to have any dialogue in the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he said, well, I, how do I do that? I'm, I'm so involved. If I'm busy, I'm busy, you know? I can't. And I said, well, why can't you just do, and if you ever see the movie, he'll go, yeah, yeah. You want to so-and-so, yeah. And he's only doing that is just to keep, it's like you're 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 tethered to something, but you're not paying attention. You know, so you're looking. You know, you're ready. You want to go. You know, so and so. Yeah, you want to get on the plane, and we go. Yeah, you know, and then when he realizes what it is, then he, he may not want to do it. Like at the airport, he doesn't know until he sees a plane. Then he's not going to go. So he can be busy. And yeah, if you notice in the film, is all through it. Ready? You want to? Yeah. And it, that that. Uh, that allows him to be, you know, connected to, but not necessarily really paying
0: attention. It's a little like my conversations with you, Gil. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so it was a, a device, and, and, and he was right. The question is, uh, you find a way for the actor to be comfortable. Right. And that, in a sense, helps the character for the piece.
0: Does your acting background come into play? Well, that's what I,
2: what I think from just in the, in the acting school, because I did so many improv things and whatever and trying to understand the behavior that in anything you're in, you've got to connect in a way or you don't know you're lost. And so that's where Dustin, you know, with, if you're not really understanding what what the problem is, and if you can understand it, then you can you can move past it and he can be brilliant that way.
0: Another person you lost a role to, Dustin Hoffman.
2: Yes. Really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I I was up for the role as Mumbles. And and Dick, oh, really? Tracy. Dick Tracy. Yeah. And and I even met I even auditioned with uh Warren Beatty. Really? And he read the Dick Tracy part. I did Mumbles. And they were all talking, he especially Anything you want to do with this part, it's yours. When we were writing this screenplay, we said Gilbert Gottfried is the only one who can do this. And and so I was all set to uh, be like the next, you know, Faye Dunaway working with Warren Beatty. <laughs> yeah, too Perfect. Much. And and <laughs> then so and I'm really looking forward to it because I know it's going to be an old star, big thing. And then my I say to my agent, uh, so when are they going to start working on it? And he goes, oh, uh, they're not using you. And I said, they're not. After all that, and he goes, I said, who are they using? And he said, uh, Dustin Hoffman. So I figure, like. What was it, like 3 o'clock in the morning? It was still in Jeet Gottfried or Dustin Hoffman? Because I've said it before, the only time my name and Dustin Hoffman's name can be used in the same sentence <laughs> is I've seen Gilbert Gottfried's acting, and he's no Dustin Hoffman. <laughs>
2: Oh my, it's Barry knows Warren Beatty. Maybe he'll get to the bottom. Oh of the yeah, point. I gotta find out what oh, happened I'm there. ask him.
0: <laughs> we're we're gonna move to Q and A in a minute, but I but I have to ask you for just for personal reasons. I have to ask you about Good Morning Vietnam, which is a movie that my wife and I adore, and, and there's so much to love about it. Uh, reading an interview with you, and you were talking about, and it was touching. You were talking about how Robin worked hard to get to know the Asian actors, yes, the the bit players. And and I think the affection and comes comes across on screen, especially like the the mock softball game, the the makeshift softball game. Well, the two
2: things to it is one is that Robin has this immense curiosity, you know, because he 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 needs to understand and you know connect to. So he's always you know curious about everything, and to and he was very helpful in in a sense. We were going to do these scenes. I don't know if you saw the movie, but there are these scenes that take place in the classroom where he's and. When we started to do one of the early takes of it, and then the Vietnamese have to ask questions, and it it never, it didn't seem real to me. It just seemed, didn't seem real, seemed sort of fake because they they can't quite say the lines the way they're written and everything. And so, uh, and then during a break, um, Robin was talking outside with the you know the people that are in the classroom, these Vietnamese. And they're talking and then they're laughing, you know, and, and, and struggling, you know, to explain. And then Robin would get in there and they were and I went, look, look how great that is. And so when we went back in, I said, look, Robin, what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll let you, you know, the, the scene. I'll let you sort of run with it. I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, slate it so they don't know we're actually filming. And then we'll get to the parts that we need for it. But we'll make it sort of very loose and you can go and ask him other things and whatever. And, and, we'll, and we'll put it together that way. So I never, we did hand signals. So when he would start to talk and I really thought it was, you know, it's getting interesting, then I would indicate and then they would roll and sound would go. And then out of that is how those classroom scenes developed. And then for the, um, the softball game at the end, I thought, well, you know what I'll do? I'm not going to explain to the Vietnamese how to play the game.
0: Yeah, it's clear they don't know how. They
2: won't. I'm not going to explain. And we had two MPs, and I said, look, if they run to the wrong base, so they go to third base instead of first base, then you'll direct them as to what to do. And let's just let it go and see what happens. And so that thing that was taking place, and all of that and their laughing and the confusion, was literally they were confused and they were having fun. And we, that's the way we did it. And Robin was key because he... He makes those connections in a way that there's this comfort level, and they were all just in basically enjoying, and uh, we were able to get the elements we needed.
0: Yeah, the sweetness the, the, in the relationship, I think, comes across.
2: Yeah, and it was—he was, was invited invalu- I mean, he was a wonderful guy. He was a great guy.
0: Tell us one thing. Jen will jump to the questions. Tell us one thing about uh, the great Bruno Kirby too, who's uh, who, who doesn't have a lot of scenes in the movie, but. Steals everything he's in.
2: Bruno was f- fabulous, and and we became friends. So when he had to do the scene where he's going to go on the air, And he's going to do this thing. He said, "Listen, I have this idea," <laughs> and I said, "I tell you what, Bruno, don't tell me. You know, I don't I don't even want to know what it is. Just go and do it, and we'll just shoot, see what you come up what you've come up with." And he said, "All right," and so he came up with that that, that whole thing. Frenchie. Frenchie, and he's talking to him like a ventriloquist. I mean, oh, Frenchie. Thing. It was his craziest thing. <laughs> and that was all Bruno, all made up. It is and brilliant. And we should literally, like, just let Bruno have his moment in doing that. And uh, and it was fun. When you say, look, yeah, go see what's going to happen. Let's just try
0: it. In my heart, I know I'm funny. Yeah.
2: <laughs> in the great line. Former VP Richard Nixon, <laughs> we'll arrive here this week. Drywitz, I'm assigned you to cover the PC.
0: He likes to say PC instead of press conference. Because and if you money. do, and if you do,
1: and if you do happen to speak with him, please be polite and to the
2: point at all times.
0: Affirmative, sir. Affirmative, sir. Good. Okay. The former VP will be here on Friday. <laughs> I expect every minute of the VP's PC to be taped and broadcast within 12 hours of his arrival. Something funny, Garlic, but
1: perhaps you'd like to share it with the rest of us.
0: No, sir. The former vice president is a delight, sir. Excuse me, sir.
1: Seeing as how the VP is such a VIP, shouldn't we keep the PC on the QT? Because if it leaks to the VC, you can end up an MIA, and then we'd all be put on KP. <clears throat> I
0: would like to leave the room now. Oh, uh, yes, sir.
1: Did the movie Toys with Robin Williams? Yes, and in that, I mean, the movie didn't do well.
2: No,
0: it's and, ahead of its time. Really, got
2: vilified uh, actually at the time. It was completely but misunderstood. Te- tell us about the toy planes in Toys. The toy planes? Well, the toy. I mean, what I thought, which obviously didn't come across, is that there is going to be this point in time with with. Uh, You know, with computers and things that we're going to end up with these, you know, electronic, you know, um, this military. So the planes will be without pilots and which is now what we have with, you know, the uh, drones. Drones. And we would end up with that in in the miniature sizes where they would have, you know, that and all the video things. And you can it's all about hand eye coordination and this whole step. That we're, that we're taking in terms of military and how it's influential in so many ways to it. So I thought it was this, I, I thought the idea of doing a black comedy that doesn't look like it's dark, but it looks like it's all primary colors, but it's extremely dangerous in terms of the idea how you can pervert the idea of toys and begin to go into another you know dimension, uh, of which it was like a tact... Etc. For a long time.
0: There's an article I know somewhere in the Guardian or somewhere. There's an article, a lengthy article about how the film's ahead of its time and and, yeah. and will will grow in appreciation over the years, which I think is true.
2: Yeah, but it's, there are those things you do, and it's like, whoa, gee, they got so mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, <they> got...
0: <laughs> Great cast too. Gil, Gilbert and I appreciate the fact that Art Metrano shows up. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: He used to come on that Lumina Barclay show. That's where he started that. Oh yeah. Yeah, where he would do that Who remembers Art Metrano?
0: Like oh, bless your hearts.
2: Yeah, for those who don't
1: know, he would do like this phony magic thing where it was never actually had anything he was holding. He would like, you know, dan a
0: a handkerchief that there was nothing behind it. You want to take some questions, uh, Gil, for these uh, from, oh, for of for Mr. Levinson here? We'll move it along. Yep, they got a mic coming to you. Hi, Barry. Uh
2: just wanted to ask you about uh, what I feel is one of your underappreciated films, The Bay. I'm a big horror fan, and I've oh, seen The it Bay. Once. The and, Bay. Yeah. I have only, only seen it once cuz it scared me the first time. I was wondering if you uh, were maybe what compelled you to take that project and would you ever return to horror, thrillers, if if the right script came along? Well, you know, I I thought it was an interesting, you know, it's based on, like, probably 90% of the movie in terms of the, uh, the science of it is, in fact, correct. You know, the dumping of steroids into the Chesapeake Bay, you know, from the chicken farms and all of that, and everything that's happening in terms of the Bay, et cetera, is all factual information. And I thought, well, we'll take it a step further into this nightmare type of a piece and uh, and, uh, and we did it for a million six you know and we, we handed out cameras to people in the streets and then they would shoot things etc and collect the cameras and it's all you know put together The irony and this is where the business bike gets so crazy is that the distributors said, well it's not really a horror film." And I said, well I mean it has scary things He said yes but it only has six real scares And it's supposed to have seven. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, no, so it doesn't. So we went to Toronto where they have uh, Midnight Madness, which is a week of horror films. You know, it starts at midnight to two, three in the morning. You know, I mean, like these people with the horror films. We went right into that particular audience and we were the runner up as audience favorite. And the studio said, yeah, but it's not a horror film. So it, it had a, a, a limited release, but at a million and a half, you know, they're not going to lose any money on it. But, but in it, the factual information, it, there's a, quite a few things that are actually, you know, correct. Uh, but then we take that extra step. I love doing it. I love doing it. I love playing around with, you know, different forms and not necessarily being married to this is what I do. Specifically, I can jump around. So that was fun.
1: And, and I'm you glad know, you enjoyed it. You're a monster fan.
2: I like, I, I always, well, We were talking about I, it then. We were talking about it. I love the old monster films, you know what I mean? Because I loved, uh, and, and as a kid, you would go, you know, like the one is that we'd had that discussion afterwards, like the mummy, I was telling Gilbert. I said, I said well, you know, a, a mummy could never catch me. You know what I mean? I can outrun any mummy. No, <laughs> no mummy is going to catch me. I can, you know, I got shoes on, with rubber soles. They're never going to catch me. And, and then a friend said, you know, yeah, but mummies never have to sleep. And then I was like, oh, God, when I go to bed, the mummy might come. <laughs> you know, then I got scared. But we would come up with those things like, why does Frankenstein have to have such heavy shoes? You know what I mean? Because you remember, they were like big things. <laughs> so you can imagine like Frankenstein in some sneakers, you know, then you'd really be scared because he would move much faster. Basically, all of those creatures and all of those things, they were all slow moving. That was part of It's like a textbook. It said all those creatures, zombies as well, all have to move slow. They don't move quick. And so we loved, I loved all those things, you know, don't open the door. Don't open the door.
0: You know what I mean? Gilbert used to have a bit in his act. He used to have a bit about the, the lever that blows oh, up the castle. Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: it, it, it was like, Ah. Uh, uh, Ah, let me go to the lever to blow up the castle. And it's it's like, oh, you have a lever to blow up the castle? Yeah, the guy who built the castle (laughs) said, you want me to throw in a lever to blow it up? I could throw it in for a cheap price. And you'll just pull on it, and it'll blow your whole castle up. And uh, but just be sure you got to remember never to throw a
0: coat on it. Nothing. Let's take a couple of more questions. I love that the any, lever. Anybody else? Any other questions? for This this gentleman in the back with the white shirt. That's hysterical. <laughs> Reminding me of that. Uh, you've told a lot of great stories over the years. What's the best story you've ever told? What's the best story you ever told? The best story
2: I ever told. You mean in life or in a movie, or could be anything. Gosh, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one. Um, uh, I could tell you two. Uh,
0: <laughs> pick a pick the best one. Pick a dozen.
2: I don't. I I don't know. I mean, I thought the George story was a pretty amazing story for craziness, you know, uh, and and a hundred percent true. Uh, so I, I'd have to rank that as, to me, the the, the top of story in terms of that deals everything with, you know, career, in, madness, insanity, and friendship all mixed into one. Well, also so kick, I'm sticking by that.
0: <laughs> it's, and it, it kicked your career off in the strangest way. It, well, it, it, it absolutely uh, did.
2: yeah, yeah you, no, if you, I don't go to that acting school with George... Um, none of the things that took place afterwards would have happened because that was the defining, I didn't know it at the time, but that one step was, you know, it's like you you never know in life. You suddenly go through a door into some room and then everything will ultimately be changed and you don't realize it at the time, but down the, the step by step by step, everything will go in another direction.
0: Of all the guests I researched, it was the most fascinating show business origin.
2: No, it's bizarre, you know? I mean, because it's funny, you know, my my father, who never understood um, what I was doing uh, in this business, you know, and so and that's the upbringing that I came from, is that he didn't understand anything about film or anything about it. I remember, uh, here's the way he would relate to it. You know, he said, so how you doing? I said, well, I'm writing, you know, but I haven't sold anything. He said, well, at least you got inventory. (laughs) so he was just a businessman you know and i said you know he's he's he would say you know why don't you write you know one of those uh you know rocky movies (laughs) yeah why don't you write one of those rocky movies
1: now since since we're running late uh do you have anything you want to plug and tell the audience about
2: well, uh, I mean, coming out uh, in, uh, at HBO, I think it's May 20th, is, um, is The uh, Wizard of Lies, which is a film I did for HBO. It's with uh, you know, Bob De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer, and it's about the Bernie, Bernie Madoff scandal uh, that deals with that whole period of, of his life and all the things that happened. So that's, that's upcoming.
0: There's a rumor that you're going to do a film with Billy Crystal. Is that just uh, trade talk?
2: We're talking, you okay. know, we'll see what happens.
0: Okay.
1: Okay, so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. We're here at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and we've been talking to the guy who just killed my career. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been the next Charlie Chaplin <laughs> had I not done some piece of shit pilot (laughs) with Barry Levinson.
2: (laughs) Barry, thanks.
0: Special thanks to John Beach for our announcement at the beginning, as well as the interstitial singing. Check them out at voiceguide.org. And thanks also to Bennett Golden for capturing the event live for us at Tribeca.
1: Get the closest, most comfortable shave you've ever experienced with Goose Shaving Supplies. Whether you need a new safety razor, shaving brush, shaving cream, or aftershave, Bull Goose has you covered. They've even designed their own line of stainless steel razors called Asylum Shave Works, which are machined to the tightest tolerances right here in the U.S.
0: Just visit BullGooseShaving.com to change the way you shave today. And, of course, you are going to get 15% off all soaps shaving creams and aftershaves when you enter the promo code Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T at checkout, Bull Goose Shaving.